Good morning. Let me begin with some good news. Uh, James and Rosemary Ritchie will celebrate 65 years of marriage on Friday. Isn't that great? Uh, they're, worship, they're worshiping at home today, so they're not with us in person. They've been in and out just uh, different weeks, but they're not here today. But when you see them, uh, congratulate them. 65 years. Isn't that great? Um, also, if you look at the bulletin, some good things going on. Winter harvest begins today. There's an insert about the room at the end, a lot of details on the back, and that's coming up as well. Uh, look at the screen at this picture. You may be aware of all the hurricanes that have hit the U.S. There have been two to hit Central America uh, about two weeks apart, specifically hitting uh, Nicaragua and Honduras. I was looking on Facebook at Mission Lazarus Post, and these were some of their pictures. Uh, and I thought this was quite interesting. The last hurricane hit like Monday, Tuesday, and or Tuesday, Wednesday, and then by Thursday, Healing Hands International had already delivered these huge packages of supplies and relief and food, and then the good folks at Mission Lazarus were distributing all of that. And so just a couple of the pictures. I share that because you might recall earlier this month we had a special contribution, and a part of that $4,000 went to Healing Hands International. Uh, so your generosity is making a difference. And, of course, if you want to continue, those are great works, and they do awesome things. I was just so inspired that so quickly the relief was there. Um, there is a video. I just saw it this morning, and I'll try to post it to our church's uh, website, um, showing just the, the roads are washed out, and they've got these four-wheel drives, and they are still getting to these remote areas. Remember, these countries don't have federal disaster grants or loans. There's no such thing as flood insurance. So when your home gets devastated, it's just gone. You're just back to nothing except for good people who will come in and help. And so thank you for being a part of that. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. There's also an outline in the bulletin if you want to follow along. I have been so encouraged by you and the way you have encouraged me with these lessons. Uh, I thank you for your comments and your emails and your texts. Those encourage me greatly. Uh, have you heard about the ladies that were driving a church van and they ran out of gas on the interstate? And they looked and there was no container for gas, but one lady had managed to pack a bedpan. So they walked to the gas station, got a little bit of gas, and they went back to the church van, and they were pouring the gas from the bedpan into the tank, and somebody drove by and saw that and said, now that is faith. <laughs> How do you know what real faith is? We don't really like the answer. It'd be so easy if it's if you worship God every Sunday, or you read your Bible often, or you prayed all the time. But the only way to really know when faith is real is when it is tested. Abraham is called the father of the faithful for a reason. And we love Abraham and we love reading about him because his faith was tested so many times. And he passed, it, he passed those tests by believing, trusting that God would provide. His confidence was in Yahweh. Sometimes we translate that Jehovah. So here in this text, he calls God Jehovah Jireh. Let's look at Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. 
He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand fire and the knife. So they both went, they went both of them together. Isaac said to the father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I realize that we are familiar with this text, maybe so familiar that we just kind of read over it and not realize really what's going on. So I put this on the screen on your outline. As we reflect on this, I want you to remember two things. Number one, Abraham does not know this is a test. Nowhere in the text does it say that. And also, Abraham has not read the end of the story. So even as we begin to read the story, we know how the story ends. And so there's no tension there. There's no concern for us because we know the end of the story. But not so for Abraham. That makes his actions and his words so inspiring. He took this walk with God based on the promise of a son. And notice how he responded. Look again in verse 3. I want you to notice all the action verbs there. Abraham rose in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I want you to notice. Think about what's not mentioned here. There's no mentioning of bargaining with God. It doesn't say anything about Abraham saying, why God? It doesn't say anything about him talking with Sarah. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. Know what Abraham says in verse 5. Then Abram said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In saying that, I don't think Abraham was hiding his intentions from these two young men. I don't think it was some type of unconscious prophecy that even Abraham didn't understand how things were going to play out. I believe that sentence is revealing his unwavering faith. He may not know how it would happen, 
But Abraham believed God would make a way. God would provide. God would keep his word. Isaac was his promised son. Abraham knew that. This didn't make any sense. And yet Abraham believed. How do you explain a faith like that? How do you explain a 120-year-old man willing to sacrifice this son that he'd waited for for 25 years? I think there's a hint in the way he responds to his son's questions. Dad, we've got the fire. Dad, we've got the wood. Dad, where's the sacrifice? And you remember, you remember what Abraham said? The Lord will provide. God's going to take care of that. Look at the screen. True, credible faith walks in confidence of God's provision. Faith that is real is going to be tested. Faith that is genuine will go through trials and become confident that God is there. Jehovah Jireh. That is the only way that faith grows because in that trial is when we are made aware of the sufficiency of God. Now we talked about that talked about that a little bit last week in El Shaddai, the sufficiency of God. But this is where we come to know him as Jehovah Jireh. A little bit of background to the name. The word Jireh, if you just literally uh, translated that word, it means to see. In fact, if you do a word study of that Hebrew word, you're going to find out that's how that is translated more often than not, to see. But we already have a name of God that says to see. El Roy. Hagar, remember? God sees me. So that's the God who sees. But when you read the word Jireh in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's not usually meant in the sense of seeing in the presence. It's the idea of seeing in the future. Or a word we might use is foresee. God is able to see into the future, not just in the here and now. Look at the screen, Abraham's wording in verse 8, where he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Literally translated, it would be, God will see for himself the lamb. That's what the actual words mean. Same at the end of the story, where in our translation, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Literally, it will be seen. And I was thinking about that. I thought, we use that word as well in this similar way. We'll say a phrase like, well, I will see to it. And we're talking about in the future. It's not like I'm going to see it. I'm going to see to it. I'm going to see what, I'm going to make it happen. That's what we're talking about here. Or we might even say to someone, see that it gets done. And when we say see there, we're not talking about look We're talking about make it happen. Again, back to the provision kind of thing. So let's put on our thinking cap for a moment and make sure that our theology is in tune with Scripture. Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the personal name of God. Remember when God appeared to Moses, he says, I am, I am. And we talked about that, and it's still one of those phrases, those names that we try to wrap our brains around. Why would God say his name is I am? Well, that I am tells us he's with us in the present, and he's also with us in the future, that God is not bound by time. So when we grasp this, his name is I am. He's not the God of the past. He's not the God of the, of the future. He's not the God of the He is the God that transcends time. And again, this is beyond this because we don't. We can only be in the here and now. We've got a past. We can't see the future. 
But to God, it's all the same. He knows the past. He knows the future. He knows the now. Understanding this gives some uh, insight into an ongoing debate in the Christian circle. And that is about free will. Are we able to choose God and follow Him? Or is that something that's predestined, that's chosen for us, and we don't have a choice? Well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, Jesus speaks of both. Think of John 3, 16. There's a key word in there. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever, anybody, it's open, it's your choice. But in the very next chapter... Jesus says, no man can come to me unless he, the Father draws him. Well, what does that mean? See, the reason this debate goes on and on is that we're bound by time. And we struggle with this in our minds. If I knew my future, where's my choice? Right? Because I know I would have to choose what goes along with my future. We can't handle that in our finite minds in the way God has made us. But God can handle that. He is Yahweh. He is I am. And part of this just reminds us he's so much above us. We have to put God in his rightful place and not keep him on our level. Look at the screen. It is God's prevision that prompts his provision. Kind of using that word about that prevision, that seeing ahead, that foreknowledge, foreseeing, seeing ahead. Provision is a Latin compound word. Pro meaning before, vision meaning to prepare. And think for a moment. What is the greatest example of all of history of God seeing a need and then meeting the need? Can you think of an example? I think Romans 5 verse 8 says it well. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is Jehovah Jireh. He saw the need. Even before you even knew, even before you were born, he knew you would have this need and he made provision for you. That's what we're talking about here. This is the aspect of God. And the reason we need to know this name of God is because sometimes in the middle of our trouble, in the middle of our trial, it sure seems like God's not looking. It sure seems like He's not seeing. It sure seems like He's not doing anything. Because we're in the middle of that trial and we just don't get it. Think about Abraham's situation. He found himself... It was lose-lose in some ways. Think about all the contradictions. A theological contradiction. God's instruction went against God's own mandate not to kill. Right? Plus, it made no sense. Why would Abraham take the life of the son through whom the whole nation was to come? Made no sense. Theological contradiction. An emotional contradiction. His faith in God went against his amazing affection and love for this promised son. God, don't make me choose. And a relational contradiction. We said this a moment ago. You ever notice there's no record of the conversation between Abraham and Sarah? You know why that is? We don't know. You want to know Randy's guess? Because I don't think he told her. Now, I don't, can't prove that, but how would you explain that to Sarah? Have you thought about that? 
That would be so, so hard. And would Sarah go along with it? And even think about it. If he went and he killed his son, offered his son, and he came back, and what are all the other people? What is society going to think? That's the guy that killed his own son. Nobody's going to think well of that. So many contradictions at play. It was a dark day for Abraham. And yet Abraham learned what we need to know is God does some of his best work in the dark, in those difficult moments. Look at the wording in verse 13. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the thorns. Notice that when God gave Abraham the command to offer his son, Abraham immediately obeyed. He got to work. He didn't banter back and forth with God. He didn't delay. I'll go next week. He Right away, three-day journey, he obeyed constantly all the way up until God provided. Abraham's response is so worth noting here. I share that because, can you not look back on your life and have moments where, at the time you didn't see it, but now you can look back And see where God was working. Where God was maneuvering things. Molding you. Changing you. At the time you didn't see it. You were not aware. But when you look back you realize that God had you in his hand the whole time. God works that way. When I was in college at Fried Hardeman. Dr. Dow Flatt was my Bible professor. uh, Taught me Greek. He was my advisor. And then years later, when we moved to Coleman into a neighborhood, one of my neighbors was Dr. Flatt's professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And it was so neat to see that come full circle. And I learned a story about Dallas Theological Seminary. When it first started, it it almost folded. It was the day of commencement, 1929. The faculty had gathered in the president's office to pray because they didn't have any money to go forward. Dr. Harry Ironside... One of the faculty was known to be rather blunt. When it was his turn to pray, he referenced Psalm 50, verse 10. Lord, we know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of them and send us the money. That's a bold prayer. What he didn't know is that very day, a West Texan cattle rancher was going to Fort Worth to sell two loads of cattle made the sale, and then drove over to Dallas and said this to the secretary. I know it sounds strange, but I have the sense that God wants me to make a donation. So he wrote out the check. She took the check and timidly went and knocked on the door to interrupt the prayer session. And she handed the check to the president. He read the check and saw the amount and looked over at Harry and said, Harry, God sold the cows. (laughs) We love stories like that because we see how God comes through At just the right time. One author that I was reading says he writes in his Bible this, J-E-J-I-T. J-E-J-I-T, meaning just enough, just in time. And I thought, that's throughout the Bible, isn't it? Where you see the problem, the situation, there's no way out, they're without hope. And God gives just enough, just in time. So that may be a challenge for you to take away from the lesson. Think about it. Next time you're studying, just write that in your Bible. J-E-J-I-T. Think about that. There's times where it was very public. 
like when the children of Israel are, are pinned between that, the commanding uh, is Egyptian army and the Red Sea. Everybody saw that. Or sometimes it's more private. Like that widow in her jar of oil that was just enough. Just enough, just in time. Have you ever noticed that about God's personality? You'd have a hard time convincing me that when Jesus decided to walk on the water in the storm and appear to his disciples, that he did not love the look on their faces when he appeared. You know what I'm talking about? Or when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, this burning bush is speaking, and what Moses must have looked like at that moment, which makes me want to ask the question, I put this on the screen, why does God sometimes wait for the very last minute to provide? Why does God, so it seems, wait to the very last minute to provide? Do you ever feel that way? Maybe you've been there in the ICU, and you're at death's door, and you're praying, God, where are you? Or maybe it was your own situation. Maybe it was a financial trouble. Maybe it was in a relationship. Why did God wait until the hand with the knife was in the air before he said, stop? He does that, doesn't he? We may not like the answer, but here it is. It's because we learn to trust God's sufficiency in trials. We learn to trust God's sufficiency in trials. That's when we are looking up to him. See, it's one thing to believe and obey when things are going well, when we're healthy, when we've got the money, when our kids are behaving, when all is well in this life. But what about when it's not going well? Here's the point. We need to remember that God is in the developing business. He's in the business of turning sinners into saints. Now, see... When we're saved, we're saved. That's our day of salvation. The Bible calls it that. And we understand when you give your life to Jesus, he washes you clean. You are in. And that's good. And we know that. But sanctification is a lifelong process. Sometimes we read sanctification in our Bibles, and we may think of that as just another religious word for for salvation or being saved. But it's different. Now that you're God's, now that you're saved... He sets on a a lifelong conquest to mold you, to mature you, to conform you into image of His Son. Now, you're saved, yes, but He's not through with you. He wants to to constantly uh, develop you. And my suspicion is He's going to do that for you and me just like He did it for Abraham through tests and trials. It was one trial after another that taught Abraham to have confidence that God would provide. Just reflect for a moment. We've been talking about the life of Abraham. God appears to him. God appears to Abram and says, I want you to leave everything and move. Understandably, Abram asked the question, where? Where are we going? And you remember God's response? I will show you where. By faith, he packs up everything and goes. He gets to Canaan, this land full of wicked people, ungodly people. You want me to stay here? Yes. And God says, I will provide protection for you. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, great. But not year one, not year five, not year ten. Twenty-five years waiting. And I share all this to say, 
it's not like once he hit 20 or 40 or 60 or even 80. It's sort of like, okay, I'm good with God and I'm just going to coast until it's my time to kick the bucket or the Lord comes back. The tests keep coming. In fact, we'd probably all say this was the hardest test yet. Go to the mountain and offer him back to me. What was Abraham thinking? The text in Genesis 22 really doesn't share much. We see him obeying. We don't know a lot of the conversations. But God knows. And God inspired the writer of Hebrews to share this. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now again, we might read this and think, well, sure, the Bible is full of stories of God bringing people back from the dead. And that's true. But not before Genesis 22. Abraham is believing in something he'd never heard of before. Nobody had ever seen before. And yet he reasoned by faith. He reasoned by faith that God was going to make it happen. Somehow, some way. That's what we're talking about here. Why? Why was Abraham able to do that? I believe it's because he was able to look back on a lifetime of God providing, of God being there for him. Even his son Isaac, living proof that God comes through. Here's the point. You're never going to know God as the provider, Jehovah Jireh, without trials. Until you're in that situation where it's beyond your ability and your knowledge and your bank account and your resources and your relationships where there is nothing you or anybody you know or anything you have can do to solve it. That's when you fully come to know and appreciate God as the provider. And those times are hard. Those times are awful. We do everything we can to make sure we never put ourselves or find ourselves in a situation like that. And you hate when you're there. Nobody wants more time in the intensive care unit. Nobody wants to bury a loved one. Nobody wants to file bankruptcy. Nobody wants to go into the fiery furnace. Nobody wants more trouble. Nobody wants trials. But the tested saint learns to worship in obedience, knowing, trusting that God provides. I believe that is why, that is how Abraham was able to offer Isaac on the altar so maybe an application question. What is your Isaac? Or who is your Isaac? It could be marriage. It could be a son. It could be your children. It could be a job. It could be one of a thousand things where just your whole life is kind of wrapped up in that person or that relationship or, or whatever that is. But if you know Jehovah Jireh, you know your future doesn't depend on that. That person, that job, that money, your future depends on the one who can provide. That kind of faith, that kind of trust is really what changes your life. 
and especially changes the people around you, most notably your own children. Because all their growing up years, they're watching you. So I'll put this on the screen. Your faith in God's provision is what prompts your children to climb up on altars. Every time I read this story, I, I think Abraham is not the only one with amazing faith. It talks about how he bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now, we don't know the age of Isaac. He's obviously old enough to carry the wood. Most scholars think he's about 20. So if he's about 20, that means Abraham is about 120. Do we think a 120-year-old man could forcibly take down his young man of a son? I read through the text here and I think, could he have done this if Isaac was not a willing participant? That he wasn't in on it? Shared the faith? Why? Why would this young man who'd really not been through all those tests like Abraham had, why would he be willing to go along with this? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it had something to do with what Isaac saw in his own dad. He had heard his dad say, we will go worship and we will come back to you. But even more, don't you know that Abraham and Sarah told Isaac every bit of detail about his birth story? How he was the promised son. And how many times they had given up. And how many times they kept asking God, is it going to happen? And how many times they tried to take matters in their own hands. And God said, wait, 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 wait. And then how God came through. And that Isaac is your story. How could that not make a difference on this young man? Coming to believe in this God that Abraham, at this moment, again, made no sense at all as the world would look at it become a partner in this. Moms, dads, grandparents, what are our children learning from us? What are, what's their takeaway? Are they learning that God lives in a church building and we should go see him on Sunday if we don't have anything else going on? Or do they see day after day you believing that God is with you every day, taking care. He is Lord of your life. He is providing. He is the I am. See, when there's a crisis or a trial, we either can be just like the world and, and model panic and fear, or we can be a man or a woman of faith, and we can model faith and calm. And when the children grow up in a home where the mom and dad say, this is awful, children. This is hard. We're in a situation where we don't know what to do. We don't have the resources. Only God can provide, and we trust in Him. Will they ever, when it comes their time, choose to believe in God and even be willing to crawl up on that altar? How, how would a ram get caught in the thicket? And Abraham not hear that or see that. Just enough, just in time. God was making that happen all along the way. So that when Abraham looked up with his eyes, there was the sacrifice. 
God was providing so many details. So we we'll close with this question, kind of a critical question. It's not will God provide. The question is do I trust him? Do I trust God will come through for me? I think this is what Jesus was talking about so many times when he would chide the, the, the disciples for their, their small faith, the things we worry about. When all we have to do, all we have to do is look at God's track record. We've got a Bible, a book full of them, story after story, where God provided just enough, just in time. Do you remember when Jesus told the Jews that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced? Remember that in John chapter 8? I love that story, and I wonder, again, what would it have been like just to see their faces as Jesus said to these Jews who did not want to believe he was the Messiah, that Abraham, their father of faith, saw my day and rejoiced. Now, imagine with me how God was inspiring Paul to write so many incredible truths in his New Testament letters. I can see it now. God looks over at Abraham and gives him a wink as he says, Paul, write this, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Abraham just smiles and nods. What an amazing truth. One scholar wrote this. It was Abraham who said, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That is, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The word mount is a Hebrew for mountain and includes a mountainous district properly describing the place of Calvary. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Paul, write this, Philippians 4, 19. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God has already met your greatest need. God did not withhold his only son. Like with Abraham, God saw your need and he sent a lamb to be placed on the altar and sacrificed. Only this time when the hammer was raised to nail the spikes... There was no voice saying, stop. Jehovah Jireh was providing for your sins. And what he wants to know is if you will accept his provision, his salvation, his son. And he will do with you like he did with Abraham. God is still making Abrahams. Jim Eliff wrote the introduction for the autobiography of George Mueller. It's titled, A Million and a Half Answered Prayers. You know the name George Mueller? For, for the first 26 years of his life, it was awful. He was a drunk, a reprobate. On the day his mother died, he stole money from her to buy more liquor. I mean, that's how far gone he was. But at 26, he repented. And he gave his life to Christ. He lived in the 1800s in Bristol, England. And what he's known for is how many orphans that he cared for. For the rest of his life, that was his calling, caring for the orphans in England. Over 2,000 throughout his lifetime. But the most amazing part of that for me is he received, in today's equivalent, $17 million 
to help care for the orphans, and he never asked for a dime. You'll find no record of him pleading with a group, a civic group, a church group, anything in the newspaper, asking for money to care for the orphans. He never did. It never went to another person. But what you will find are his prayer journals. And with that, over 5,000 prayers recorded and answered. If anybody asked him, do you need money? His answer was, God will supply every need. If anybody asked him, do you have enough food? He'd say, in God's pantry, there is always plenty. And there's story after story about how God came through. But there was a time when, again, the debts were so great, no way to pay them. This was his prayer. Lord, you know that I've never spoken to another man about the needs of this orphanage. I've only spoken to you and believe that you will provide and meet the needs as great as they are. And that day the mail came, one letter from a lady said, I've heard the good things you're doing and I want to help. And she had enclosed a diamond ring, the proceeds to be sold and to pay the debts. And if you go to Bristol, England today, you'll find that they, like orphanages all over the world, they don't have a big institution like they used to. They care for them in homes. What used to be the group home is now a college. There's also a foundation and even a museum. And I'm told you can go into a study and you can find where he took that diamond ring and on the window engraved Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. You know, again and again in the Bible, it talks about believing, believing, believing. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Why? Because he had amazing faith. He did not know how God was going to make it work. But he knew God was able. And he knew God would keep his promises. And so Abraham believed. We know our problems. We know our problems. But do we know God's name? God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was providing. Our invitation is for you to say yes to Jesus so that he can start that lifelong transformation of molding you more and more to be like him. We want to give you that opportunity to say yes or if we can pray for you in your walk, pray for that your faith will be strong, whatever your situation is, once you come as we stand and sing to encourage. Thank you, Lord, for loving me and thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. And